0: This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome again to our conversations on Colonial Revolutionary South Carolina. Our guest tonight, it's a real pleasure to have uh, Daniel Tortora, who is professor of history at Colby College in Maine. Dan is a graduate of W&L. He got his master's degree in history here at the University of South Carolina. He did his degree in colonial history, and then he went off to Duke. We'll forgive him for that, but he is at Colby and he has a really, really good book. For those who want to learn a little bit more about the colon- southern colonial frontier, particularly the Carolina frontier, there's a lot of new information in this book because he had access to Colonel James Grant's papers, uh, which most historians, I didn't have access to them when I wrote my history. Nor did most other people who wrote have written about this war. So, Dan, that's a lengthy introduction, but how did you come up? Why did you decide to work on this particular topic? Because you did work in colonial history, but you dealt with uh, religious folk in the Low Country.
1: Well, how this came about was I discovered references to war and tension on the frontier in this diary, the William Hudson diary in the South Carolina Historical Society. And I didn't know really what he was referring to. And I had never really read what he might be referring to. And I thought about my own um, childhood growing up in New England and traveling to some of the French and Indian War forts. And I realized that there was quite a bit going on in South Carolina, but yet nobody had really written about it. And if this pastor was making some vague references, there must be more out there to to discover. And so I just became intrigued, and the more I learned and the more I traveled in the area, the more I wanted to know.
0: Well, before we get into the story, how did you get access to the James Grant papers?
1: Just in the last few years, a number of materials like the Grant papers have become available to researchers, and I learned that those had been microfilmed and were both at the Library of Congress and at the David Library of the American Revolution. And so I got those about a year after those became available, and I mined them pretty thoroughly for several weeks to a month, and uh, that's how I was able to find military correspondence, letters, speeches from Cherokee Indians, all sorts of previously unheard of and unknown material to work with.
0: And I mention that, folks, because James Grant, uh, a British officer, plays a major role in the whole Anglo-Cherokee conflict here in in, in South Carolina. Let's set the scene for folks in the 1750s, what's going on. The townships we talked about last week are expanding into the backcountry, up into the Long Canes, the Abbeville County, area over towards the Waxhaws the great migration of Scots-Irish down the wagon road has has become and all of these settlers are pushing up against not just the Catawba who've been pretty well eliminated as a as a threat but against the Cherokee the largest tribe in the southeast
1: and the best probably example of that are families like the Calhouns, Norris, and Clarks, and others settling the area around Long Cane Creek, and and families, many of them coming from Pennsylvania or Virginia, and some of them even by the 1750s fleeing Indian War, looking for a better future and looking for a, a start on the South Carolina frontier where they could find uh, land and um, pretty generous bounties. So a lot of people were not only looking for opportunity, but also fleeing Indian War and taking advantage of the
0: new roads that were being built and just really the hope of a better future. Yeah, and of course that's one of the ironies, is the scots Irish settlers like the Jacksons and the Calhouns and so forth on the frontier in Pennsylvania were considered the bad guys, because remember, Quakers ran Pennsylvania, and they believed that Native Americans were special, and that if there's any problem on the frontier, it had to be those settlers. And so that's as Dan said, that's one reason they they uh they came south. Now, what about the relationship between the Cherokee and the English settlers, or the I should say the low country government, because we've got a multicultural group here. You know, in the Emissy War, the Cherokees worked with the settlers but how did things develop from the 1720s up to our present time between the government in Charleston and the Cherokee?
1: Sure, so after the Yamasee War, Cherokees became increasingly involved in the growing deerskin trade, and the deerskin trade operated out of Charleston. Each year, caravans uh, packed with goods would go to the Cherokee country bringing these manufactured goods, and in exchange, the Cherokees... Had hunted all winter and they gave deer skins that could be used and made into hats, pants, gloves, all sorts of items. And so the Cherokees became increasingly involved in the deer skin trade. And that grew over time. And also the Cherokees became coveted by the English, by English authorities, Carolina authorities, as military and economic allies. And so whenever there'd be war between the English and the French, both the English and the French sought Cherokee support, alliance, and so forth. And one of the things I read about in my book is how in 1730, a Cherokee delegation went to England and was, I would say, duped or misled into signing a treaty of alliance Mm -hmm. with the English. And that became used that was sort of used as um, something that the the English authorities held them to afterward and kind of expected them to abide by even though they didn't really mean it uh, the same way that the English were trying to make them mean it. So the Cherokees became increasingly involved in the deerskin trade, they became at least de facto military and economic allies of Carolina in particular, South Carolina in particular. And over the course of the 1740s and 1750s, they became, I I guess you could say, a a, a military and economic power in the Southeast. And so when war broke out again between the French and the English, of course, Carolina, South Carolina authorities wanted Cherokees to help, to help them militarily. And really the colonies in general wanted Cherokee assistance.
0: And and in those days, when we talk about the Cherokee, we think about them as as one united people, but they weren't. They were the um, the lower towns here in South Carolina, up around Seneca, Clemson, um, the overhill towns, the middle towns, and then the overhill towns. And Cherokee territory went all the way up into Tennessee and Kentucky. And I mean, it was a huge swath yes. of the southeast.
1: Yes. So. We're, we're talking about ten to 12,000 Cherokees by the 1750s living in at least 40 villages and perhaps five different settlement clusters. And as you said, these settlement clusters probably range from Pickens County, South Carolina, to uh, East Tennessee. The Overhill towns are located in present-day Von Orr, um, Tennessee, and Monroe County, Tennessee, today. So that's a yeah. pretty
0: large swath of... And, and, of course, in terms of The Indians of the southeast, further south, you have the creek and the Chickasaw going all the way to the Mississippi River and those meddlesome French on the Gulf Coast.
1: (laughs) Yes, and of course, you know, the Chickasaw were English allies. although they were were severely weakened by the 1750s. The Choctaws Mm -hmm. um, were large and uh, numerous, and then the creek settlements as well in Mm -hmm. Georgia and Alabama
0: you know, so having the Cherokees was an important part of British imperial policy, maybe if not officially imperial policy, it certainly was those who were running things in Charleston and when we talk about imperial policy you've got to remember they do have a governor here but the Commons House of Assembly of South Carolina by this time had already asserted its authority and governors just didn't come in here and do this that and the other because there was uh, a provision that they had in the annual appropriations bill is in addition to put up a salary the royal governor got, he got a, a supplementary stipend right. from the Commons House of Assembly of South Carolina. If he didn't behave, they didn't give him the stipend. I mean the power of the purse is pretty powerful.
1: As Thomas Boone would later find
0: out. Yes, yes. So we've got the situation now, and you talked about the economic exchange. But those British trade goods really began to, to change Cherokee culture. And I was fascinated with what you, how you described it, particularly with the Cherokee women. Yes. And we have here a cultural gap. The English have no concept of Cherokee culture, not realizing that the women are ex- an extremely powerful force. And I'll let you take it from there.
1: Yeah, certainly. So the deerskin trade really transformed a matrilineal society into one that was becoming more patriarchal. In other words, Cherokee women not only negotiated peace, sometimes made the decision to go to war, but they also held considerable political influence within their communities. And once the Cherokees became more part of the English orbit, women often got excluded from those conversations and kind of pushed aside in the interactions with the English. And so there was definitely some tension in gender uh, relations among the Cherokee people. But I think one thing that's also uh, telling about that period of time is just how labor intensive the deerskin trade became. Because not only were they preparing deerskins for their own family use, they were preparing dozens of deer skins, you have to scrape them with, with shells or bones, sometimes they would soak them in, in deer brains or other things to try to you know, just kind of get them ready because it could fetch a higher price if you gave those to the trader um, already prepared. So the amount of work that it took for women to do that also took them away perhaps from their traditional. Activities and that made them then dependent on trade goods because they didn't have the time to do other things.
0: All right, now if I am an Indian trader in what they did call the skin trade, and I used to have to translate that for my undergraduates, <laughs> they got really excited about skin the yeah. skin trade. <laughs> um, when you go to sell your deer skins, I've got a rod, right? That I'm measuring, and you stack up your deer skins. Now, by this time, the traders hadn't learned their lesson from the Yamasee. They were beginning to do some of the same nefarious practices, and that was a rod was supposed to be equal to a certain number of deer skins. Right. Well, the fur traders, the skin traders, began to make the the rods, you know, an inch here, an inch there, so that's another couple of skin—in other words, they were cheating the Indians every time they were making a deal. And the Indians caught on to this.
1: Oh, absolutely. And they complained a few times in 1756 and 57, and I think that was one of the um, grievances that the Cherokees had uh, going into that that period. But in addition to that, they were also selling them, the traders were also selling rum, watered-down rum. So you can imagine that they were not too pleased about both.
0: Well, let's move on up towards the uh, the conflict we've got it to the, to, the, to the 1750s. We've got to remember, again, about South Carolina. Yeah, Georgia is there, but South Carolina is still the linchpin of European settlement. And you've got, at this point, there's still Spanish in Florida. There are the French on the Gulf Coast. And the French on the Gulf Coast are reaching up, mostly through Alabama, a uh, Fort Toulouse, about where Montgomery is, and not to mention Natchez on the Mississippi, New Orleans. So it's not just on the Gulf Coast, and all of that's having an impact on the deerskin trade. So you, you married that up with what's going on in New England and New York and Canada, and the whole frontier of the original 13 colonies is a pretty tense situation.
1: Right, and by the 1750s also, the Cherokees were a bit of a buffer between the British and the French settlements and they certainly could be because not only were the Cherokees important for the deerskin trade but they're also important for diplomatic reasons in other words if French emissaries were circulating in the region that was something that deeply concerned British authorities and so the Cherokees could not only keep French influence out um, but they could also serve as allies to potentially fight against the French and their Indian allies.
0: But but they're beginning to listen to those French blandishments by the late 1750s.
1: Absolutely. Now the French can't necessarily offer the amount of trade goods. They say they can. They can't necessarily offer that. But one thing, they don't covet the land nearly as much. They don't have as many settlers. They make an effort to get to know Cherokee culture and really any Indians culture they kind of blend into their society willingly rather than um, try to convert or change them so they offer from a cultural standpoint and at least from an economic potential standpoint they offer an alternative and at times the mere threat of a French alliance gives the Cherokees leverage against the English
0: because instead of shipping all you know moving all of those Deerskins from over the mountains to Charleston, they could just go downriver either to Mobile or New Orleans, and that's a much easier trek. You brought up the very interesting German amongst the Cherokees. I'd heard of him, but I as in detail that you mentioned him, so how about talk about Mr. Priber?
1: The utopian adventurer Christian Gottlieb Pryber, uh, Pryber, right? spelled a number of different ways, uh, but he had gone to the Cherokee country in the 17. 17- 40s, proposing to create a utopia there, uh, an interracial community where all property was held in common, where, I guess, maybe like a Shangri-La kind of place. And um, he was quickly identified by British authorities as being dangerous. Uh, he, some people thought that he was perhaps a Jesuit priest. Other people thought that he was a French secret agent. Other people thought that he was just a sort of wild child looking for adventure. But in any case, he was rounded up and taken prisoner. He was brought to a fort in, in uh, Georgia where he died in an explosion or fire. And with him, all of his years of work, he compiled a, a dictionary
0: that was lost. Yes, he compiled a Cherokee dictionary. But he gave the Cherokee the idea of nationhood, shall we say? Because we talked about, yeah. yes, they are Cherokee. They have more or less common linguistic uh, communication, but the towns are—they are separate communities—and he gave the idea of a Cherokee nation, which began to take hold. This strange guy did have an impact.
1: Yeah, he sure did.
0: But sadly, his dictionary was lost.
1: Uh, that, that's one of those things that makes the historian just cringe. <laughs> 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 would but, have been such a, a
0: resource. But he, but he wasn't the only strange child running around. There was, there was the Anglican priest in Charleston who went running through the streets pretending to be, not pretending, but...
1: Yeah, I, I claim he fashioned himself John the Baptist, grew out his beard, and began running through the streets of Charleston shouting, repent, repent.
0: Yes. The end of the world was coming, and it was going to come because the Indians were going to wipe out the white population. And you say, well, how did the Cherokee up there know about this? They knew about it, they listened. Absolutely. They had, There were people there, and it might not just come from a Native American, there might be an African American who heard what was going on and passed it back to the frontier.
1: There's small numbers of African American slaves who ran away and were seeking asylum, I guess you could say, among the Cherokee people. There's also all the folks employed in the deerskin trade, the several hundred people that they might have come in contact with. And remember, Cherokees frequently visited Charleston and other places on the frontier for military, diplomatic conferences. They also visited seeking presents and, mm-hmm. and goods. And so all along the way, they stayed with white families. And so they probably could have got information along the way as well.
0: And- Again, we we in South Carolina have wonderful colonial records, and the Commons House of Assembly only paid its bills at the end of the year, and they had a finance committee. And we've got, year after year, you will see tavern keepers submitting a bill for having put up a Cherokee, sometimes a Cherokee, sometimes it's a Catawba delegation, right. and asking to be reimbursed for housing and feeding those folks. So it's not just that they're on the frontier, they're on the streets of Charleston on a regular basis. And now we get to some real problems. Friction starts up, it starts up north, of course. <laughs> Go ahead. Sure. So
1: many of you know this story when, uh, when the French began to build a chain of forts along the back country. And really encroach too close for comfort on British possessions, or at least on British goals of uh, uh, the British wanted to uh, establish settlements in the Ohio country in particular, and so when that began to happen, here we, the Cherokees became a, a potential way for the British to have help uh, against the french and When the French were encroaching, the British sent a young officer, 21-year-old George Washington, to the Ohio country to tell the French to cease and desist. Of course, that didn't happen. He went back the following year and, make a long story short, things went from bad to worse and he, one of his allies, Indian allies, killed one of the French officers and so the, that sparked a battle at a place called Fort Necessity and what few people realize is that there were South Carolina independent company troops there present at Fort Necessity. One of them was Peter Mercier, who was uh, the commander of the garrison at Fort Congaree too, the second Fort Congaree, and was actually killed there. So um, that sparked, that, that battle sparked a war between the British and the French, and Almost immediately, South Carolina, which had traditionally been in charge of Cherokee military and economic affairs, uh, South Carolina courted and Virginia courted Cherokee assistance to help against the French, particularly in the Ohio country initially, but also to kind of ward off any intrusions in the southeast.
0: And a group of Cherokee from South Carolina did go to Virginia. And what happened on the way back?
1: Over the next several years, a number of Cherokee fought in the campaigns, and this would be for against the French foothold at Fort Duquesne, which is today Pittsburgh. And along the way back, they were attacked by Virginia frontiersmen trying to claim a scalp bounty on Shawnee scalps. They were attacked because of mutual disagreements over the th- possible theft of horses, and over three dozen Cherokees were killed in the summer of 1758 in a series of, uh, of incidents uh, along the Virginia frontier.
0: So we're already into the French, uh, actually the Seven Years' War, yes, uh, which we call the French and Indian War. But in Cherokee culture, the families of those 37 warriors, it wasn't compensation, they almost had to have a blood sacrifice. I mean, an eye for an eye.
1: Right. Blood law, as they called it, the law of revenge. And Cherokee culture required family members to avenge the deaths of their loved ones who were killed in a situation like that. So women in particular um, you know, urged their men, their warriors, to go and do something about it. And what happened after that was a series of retaliatory attacks along the North Carolina and South Carolina frontier in 1758 and 1759. Some of those attacks took place in what is today Spartanburg County. So those, those, these attacks really, um, they hit close to home. Again although the Cherokees had been killed in Virginia, to them they could seek revenge really anywhere, right? And so they did that where it was closest and easiest Mm -hmm. to do that, and that's where things really started getting tense.
0: Now, you you mentioned the forts, you know, Fort Duquesne, Fort Necessity, but it began 40 years earlier. South Carolina began to put forts in Cherokee territory.
1: Well, I think the closest fort to them would be Fort Moore.
0: Uh, Over near Augusta.
1: Right. But by the 1750s, as these Um, As these developments were taking place, South Carolina built two forts. In fact, Fort Prince George, which is today in Pickens County. They built that in 1753, and they also built Fort Loudon in the Cherokee overhills of um, Monroe County, Tennessee, and it's been reconstructed and is well worth the trip. They built those two forts in the 1750s supposedly to keep the Cherokees better supplied with trade goods and to give them a base that they could um, send their women and children for protection, right? But, But that didn't really work very well because the deerskin trade continued to be corrupt and the Cherokees found that the soldiers brought with them a series of other problems that they perhaps hadn't anticipated.
0: Smallpox.
1: Smallpox. Violence, disagreements, uh, officers like Captain Demeray, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, the sec- Paul Demeray. Um,
0: so those two forts are very important in terms of the Anglo-Cherokee War, and let's talk about specifically how the war came about.
1: So the Cherokees have launched these retaliatory attacks along the North Carolina and South Carolina frontier in 1758 to 1759. They've also got some problems unresolved grievances with being cheated on the measurements of deer skins with the watered down rum with sort of broken promises rapid settlement into their hunting grounds in the South Carolina upcountry. And so by 1758 to 59 South Carolina's governor William Henry Littleton mm-hmm. demanded a resolution. Mm. He was demanding resolution to try to restore order and confidence because for as long as these attacks were occurring, that would stall settlement and that would cripple the colonial economy in the back country. And really, if it crippled the deerskin trade too, that would affect all the merchants in Charleston. Deerskins were the second leading export. So Governor Littleton stepped in to try to bring about a resolution to this. And I think he really overplayed his hand.
0: That whole campaign. Talk about sure. Let's let's get into that. So
1: by the late 1759, a Cherokee delegation went to Charleston to try to negotiate an end to this conflict, and I think what they wanted was a truce. And Governor Littleton wanted a victory for the British, and so Governor Littleton instead seized these Cherokee delegates, raised an army of militiamen, and marched these militiamen with the Cherokee hostages back to Fort Prince George on the Carolina frontier where he held a number of those Cherokee delegates hostage and demanded that they sign a treaty agreeing to give up the so-called murderers in exchange for those diplomats who were being held hostage. Of course before he could really finish his expedition most of his men contracted measles and smallpox, and a number of them simply deserted. As George Gabriel Powell once wrote, mm. he had with him the saddest dogs known to man. <laughs> so these, these shoeless, unarmed soldiers from the, the Watery River and other mm-hmm. places, right? Um, and so that expedition fell apart. Among and, them
0: would have been Francis Marion.
1: Uh, right. So Francis Marion was there. Christopher Gadsden was there as a gentleman volunteer, uh, with the expedition, with a group of men in green uniforms from Charleston, mm-hmm. so that that treaty that Littleton imposed and then really raced back to Charleston uh, by early 1760, that treaty quickly unraveled. For one thing, he had negotiated that treaty with just a small sliver of Cherokees who hadn't been taken hostage, and some who were ho- taken hostage, and so and then he had these these prisoners innocent folks in, in Fort Prince George. And so I, as I talk about, there were several attempts, Cherokees made several attempts in the winter of 1760 to rescue these hostages, daring attempts. And in the second attempt, they failed. Um, to, they, they shot and killed the commander uh, of Fort Prince George, but they failed to storm the fort. And instead, as all the commotion was going on outside the fort, the soldiers, the British soldiers, inside killed the hostages in cold blood. And so that then sparked another round of retaliatory Cherokee attacks on the Carolina frontier. And 1760 really was an incredibly intense time.
0: Yeah, the Cherokee were riding high in 1760 in Fort Loudoun.
1: Right, so in 1760, they would turn their attention not only on the South Carolina frontier, attacking the settlers as they fled Long Cane, attacking the Saluda River settlements, the Broad River settlements, really as far as here.
0: As far as present-day Lexington County.
1: Right. That's amazing. So they pushed back the frontier. A lot of settlers decided to fortify their private homes or barns and kind of took refuge with leading members of the local community. Others fled altogether. Many of the Scots-Irish in particular just simply fled and took refuge in whatever Presbyterian enclaves they could find, the saws and others. One of the interesting stories that came out of that was that um, the Calhoun family, as you know, was attacked at Cane. Uh, at and John C. Calhoun's grandmother,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uncle, and cousin were all killed. A couple of his other, other of his cousins were taken prisoner. Two little girls, and another cousin would later flee with her family and found refuge at the Waxaws where she met Andrew Pickens.
0: The massacre at the Long Canes was—they uh, were—it's referred to in the 18th century as a wagon train of settlers. Not—not not that we think of Westward Ho and John Wayne and you know all of that, but they were fleeing with wagon buckboards of a kind with their goods piled on them they got mired in a swamp right and the indians encircled them and
1: so that's the most notable there were two cherokee attacks on uh, a compound at 96 which at that point was just a trading post and it's not really um, it's a little bit interpreted today but where the revolutionary war site was it was a big uh, french and indian war era trading post and so the Cherokees had unsuccessfully attacked that twice, and then of course they also encircled Fort Loudoun in the Cherokee Overhills.
0: And let's tell the story of what happened to the garrison at Fort Loudoun.
1: Sure, so by August the garrison was reduced to eating horse flesh and meager amounts of corn and other items that the Indian women had smuggled into them, and so they ultimately were forced to surrender. A number of the men deserted, but ultimately they surrendered and as the The soldiers and the women and children with them, these were, uh, again, independent companies, troops, but also South Carolina provincials, among them John Stewart of Charleston. Um, As these 200 or so men, women, and children marched back towards South Carolina, Cherokees lay in ambush for them, and in the morning when they woke up, they attacked, targeting all the officers. And... Shooting and killing most of the officers and taking many of the women and children prisoner. So that that moment there was pretty uh, unforeseen, I think, by any, anybody. And I think it is often overshadowed by events that occurred a few years earlier on the New York frontier, but is no less insignificant.
0: Yeah, you know, think the last of the Mohicans, folks. Right, in I mean, terms that's, that's of what-
1: really exactly what, and many people beyond the Southeast and even in the Southeast are not even aware of that.
0: And when the word got back to Charleston, as reports often are, it was exaggerated. Right. And, I mean, yes, the garrison was killed, uh, some of them were anyway, and prisoners were taken, but what had happened at Fort Prince George was left out of the story. Right. And in essence, some people connect what happened at Fort Loudenwell, well, you massacred our hostages at Prince George we're going to massacre. And you know. it's
1: not it's not just that. I mean having lost Cherokee warriors through the hostage crisis and through other, you know, British campaigns, they're also trying to adopt women and children that they can incorporate into their society to replace those people, the population that's been killed or yeah. that's died of yeah. disease. So that's yeah. a, certainly another factor too.
0: And then of course, we talked about the smallpox going to the to the Cherokee, but when those militiamen got back to Charleston, they brought the smallpox back to Charleston. There had been disagreements. Obviously, Governor Littleton was not a particularly popular guy, but British imperial authorities now begin to step in and say, we can't have this going on.
1: Right, and so, you know, this is also in 1760 before after the Cherokee attacks and after the hostage crisis and before the fall of Fort Loudoun that British officials sent a military expedition of Scottish Highlanders and others to to march into the Cherokee country and to you know set things right.
0: We'll tell what happened.
1: So they struggled to really get off the ground but when they eventually marched they found that South Carolina in its state was able to offer very little in fact, they had maybe 80 provincial soldiers and maybe a handful, a couple hundred rangers led by uh William Danger Thompson,
0: Orangeburg, right?
1: Yes. So these were these are men from Orangeburg and Amelia and some from the Long Canes.
0: So they're the frontiers. Right, they were what meager not not these softies from the low country okay?
1: what meager folks they could get, and some that were drafted into service probably from the low country yeah. but uh, th- this this expedition that that marched against the Cherokees was supposed to save Fort Loudon and also show the Cherokees who's really in charge in the southeast, and that expedition marched as far as Macon County, North Carolina, as far as just about south of Franklin, North Carolina, and the Cherokees were waiting for them, a Cherokee army of about 600, and they ambushed this British army with a handful of South Carolinians there, and they defeated and ultimately drove back this invading army, and that led to the fall of Fort Loudoun because the the troops were unable to get any further. One of the real fascinating things that I discovered in the grant papers that I think you'll be interested in The soldiers that were with Montgomery in that expedition included John Stewart's brother, a surgeon in the Highlanders.
0: John Stewart ended up being Commissioner of Indian Affairs for the Southeast. uh, And his house is still there in Charleston, um, Colonel John Stewart's house. He was a loyalist. Um, But anyway, so the British come in, they really mess things up, the Army comes back, Commander Montgomery says, oh, we won.
1: (laughs) Right. He actually got elected to Parliament. Uh, uh, Citing disability, rheumatism, he uh, received a furlough and then went back to his native Britain and then got himself elected to Parliament.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So one of his his, uh, political uh, adversaries said something to the effect of, he tells tales to uh, parties who will believe him and... uh, you know, he's, he's somehow gotten himself elected to Parliament as a result.
0: Hey, banister Tarleton just did the same thing, but just a generation later. <laughs> so, okay, the folks in Charleston realized that the Montgomery Expedition was a disaster. So they asked for imperial help again. Right. And it's not—South Carolinians don't often ask for outside help. That's true. But they need help. And of course, this particular this now we get to Colonel Grant.
1: Right, so the next year, 1761, now who's in charge of the British expedition, but the hot-tempered, arrogant uh, Colonel James Grant, Lieutenant Colonel James Grant, who would later become the Governor of Florida. But James Grant was called to finish the job. He had this time a little bit more support from South Carolina and that South Carolina had also, after or in response to the Fort Loudoun um, fall, had raised a provincial regiment that included folks like Francis Marion, Andrew Williamson, Andrew Pickens, the Moultrie brothers, and a number of other South Carolinians whose names you'd recognize in the Revolutionary era. Henry Lawrence was also one of the soldiers. And so Grant with his British troops and his hot temper took with him the South Carolina provincials and marched again to Cherokee country, this time had a much easier time because the Cherokees had already seen the height of their power the year before. They were low on ammunition, low on manpower, and simply Grant was better prepared this time around. What
0: happened to the French? Weren't they going to support the che- their friends the Cherokee now? I mean, that's-
1: well, the French had been defeated in Canada in 1760 and were really, for several years, had not been supplied in their possessions in New Orleans and Mobile. So the French, by this point, really had nothing to offer. And I believe that both in 1760 and 1761, there may have been a handful of French agents or French soldiers fighting with, or at least assisting, maybe we call them military advisors mm-hmm. uh, among the Cherokees, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. they weren't able to really do much, and they weren't able to offer the Cherokees much in, in terms of weapons or anything like that.
0: And and that campaign against the Cherokee under Grant was a rather brutal one.
1: Grant destroyed 1,500 acres of corn and beans and squash. He destroyed at least a third of the Cherokee villages, uh, including six or eight villages in the South Carolina, uh, the lower towns. And again, he was victorious in another major battle, a battle in which Francis Marion and others participated. And and, and, in the course of that campaign, not only did Grant devastate the Cherokee people and really end the conflict, He also antagonized South Carolina soldiers and civilians alike.
0: Well, we've talked about it before, and I have written about it. The English were a colonial power. If you were a colonial, whether you were Asian, African, or South Carolinian, you were a colonial. You were not really good enough to lick the boots of an an Englishman. And Grant was very hot-tempered, but so were some of the South Carolina officers there, one by the name of Middleton in particular.
1: Right, Thomas Middleton. Uh, So Grant and Middleton butted heads because Grant said that the advice of others is not worth a shilling, and so Grant did not want any provincial feedback whatsoever on the campaign. He also called the Rangers good for nothing, that's Danger Thompson and all well, his he's, l-
0: he's lucky that Danger let him get back to Charleston.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he actually tried to make him either dock the pay of the Rangers or rescind the pay of the Rangers, and Thompson said, no, um, I'm not going to do that. There was a, a, a fight in the provincial camp where uh, a provincial officer, I believe, ordered his servants to fight the British quartermaster. In the camp, so there were tensions really emerging on that campaign. Middleton ended up leaving early and going back to Charleston in a, in a bit of a huff.
0: And Grant accused him of being a coward.
1: Right, and so a war of words ensued. They, Grant, I think, wrote about a three thousand word letter, uh, a rebuttal to Middleton's charges. Middleton said, "I'm not seeing guests, but I'll, you know, I'll see you when you get back," something like that.
0: Well. You mentioned 3,000 words. This is an era of pamphlet warfare. Right. You're having a fight with your enemy. You write a pamphlet and publish it. Henry Lawrence was notorious for, or rather famous, for doing that. Uh, And incidentally, he really was a good friend of Grant's. Helped Lawrence get land in Florida when he got to be governor down there. But but we digress. Because Middleton challenged Grant to a duel.
1: Right. And they did. In fact, Middleton struck grant with the cane and that was a formal challenge and they met the day after the formal treaty was signed in Charleston between the Cherokees and the British authorities and they met in a duel and one G fired over an M's calabash, (laughs) so you have to sort that out, right? fired over his head
0: so, the treaty is an important part of this story too. And and by the way, it still made up Grant left Charleston, and although he had friends like Lawrence, Middleton was a local, and this antagonism that began here between you know Mid- Middleton, you're dealing with the low country elite. Thompson's pretty well thought of guy, but he's the rough back country guy, the English are already ticking people off and this is going to resonate 10 years later in the revolution.
1: There were fights on the floors of the uh, commons house just negotiating what the terms should be because christopher gadsden and middleton and his faction wanted one that was more harsh to the cherokees whereas grant and lawrence wanted one that was more generous not 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 as harsh toward the cherokees so there were fights there there were fights among those who felt that the backcountry had been abandoned and deserted and really forsaken as a result of these Cherokee raids. And there was also folks that saw the high expense, the the taxes that the elites were bearing to pay for these military expeditions and to pay for all the goods that were going to Cherokee country, uh, military goods. So there's tension for all those reasons. And also, you know, a new royal governor that came in with a charge to clamp down on the turbulent spirit of Gadsden, as uh, Lawrence put it, the turbulent spirit of Gadsden and others, this faction that had emerged to criticize the British uh, government.
0: And the treaty was pretty generous in terms of the Cherokee. Right. And that, again, in terms of response, it made people like Danger Thompson, those in the back right. country, very unhappy. It also meant, made a number of, you know, just, Middleton would have opposed anything that Grant thought was good.
1: Right. So not only did it restrict settlement, but it also seemed to be giving the Cherokees too much, right? Mm-hmm. They're defeated. It seemed like the South Carolina was giving away too much, uh, according to many people.
0: Well, the the war, when it did end in, in 1763, uh, the whole French and Indian War, or the Great War for Empire, as our folks across the Atlantic refer to it, uh, well, this is when they ended up getting Canada and India, and so it was the great war for the empire. The proclamation line of 1763 says, no settlement beyond the Appalachian Mountains. Right. Cherokee territory is pretty well delineated in South Carolina, up there in you know, Pickens, Oconee, Anderson, uh, Greenville counties. But the Cherokee never recovered from... The devastation of Grant's expedition. Most of those towns were not rebuilt. Right. The lower towns in South Carolina were not rebuilt after the war. Right. And for Cherokees,
1: you know, they had to try to rebuild their society that was really not only a third depleted, but really ravaged by several years of war. And at the same time, they were facing Indian attacks from elsewhere, because now what the French defeated, in North America, the British, especially up north, turned old enemies of the Cherokee against them again, pitting Indians against Indians to try to eliminate them and ultimately free the, the path for white settlement. So the Cherokees not only lost their villages and really their morale, but also lost their hunting grounds and are now subject to Indian attacks from the northward.
0: Yeah, primarily
1: the Shawnee? Shawnee, Iroquois, and others.
0: Okay. And also, until the end of the war, until 1763, the individual colonies had pretty well controlled Indian affairs. South Carolina had controlled not just their own Indian affairs, but they had pretty much, until 1763, pretty much controlled all the Indian affairs of the Southeast in terms of the British Empire.
1: Right, and now a new centralized British authority was put in place instead, and that brought a host of problems.
0: You make a very convincing case, Dan, that the war, the Anglo-Cherokee War, as you refer to it down here, and its aftermath, you can really set the stage for the regulator movement and the onset of the revolution, that the South Carolinians, particularly in Charleston, they had a number of things to contend with. First of all, they got ticked off at people like Grant and then the treaty, but they also got, very concerned about the fact that, you know, they really needed those backcountry boys.
1: Right, they were a buffer against Cherokee attacks or Indian attacks, but at the same time the backcountry grew in importance in the 1760s because with the deerskin trade no longer as important as it used to be and with the Cherokees unable to supply the deerskins that they used to be, the backcountry became more important for its crops, Hmm. for, you know, flax and hemp and wheat and mm-hmm. other crops, cattle. Mm-hmm. And so it grew in importance as it grew in population and they the, the low country really needed the back country.
0: We've left out one thing and that is not just because of the economics. And by the way, we were exporting wheat from South Carolina by seventeen seventy five. We were exporting wheat. Indigo you associate with the low country, but it was a major crop in Amelia and Orangeburg. Especially after seventeen sixty. Yeah. But in the backcountry, the population is majority European. Right. In the low country, it's almost two thirds right. enslaved. And so that's another reason that right. the low country elite needs to make sure that the backcountry folks are not too upset. Right. So
1: there's also the threat of runaway, runaway slaves and where they would go and what they would mm. do. And another another component of that too is simply who these backcountry folks are. And there's a cultural divide because the backcountry folks are a pretty rough sort like Charles Woodmason would write, <laughs> right, They're, uh, poorly clothed, uh, you know, mostly illiterate, <laughs> right?
0: Well, you know, Charles Woodmason, uh, as my late <laughs> colleague Dan Hollis used to say, he he referred to the Scots-Irish in such a derogatory way. And Dan himself, who was Presbyterian, in his lectures in South Carolina history, used to say that the Scots-Irish came down from Pennsylvania keeping the Ten Commandments and anything else they could get their hands on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, that, yes, they are. the settlers in the backcountry are predominantly, the correct term now is Ulster Scots that's what this, but they're Scots-Irish. People looking, when I say Ulster Scots, we grew up calling them Scotch-Irish, which is not correct because Scotch is something that you imbibe. (laughs) They were Scots-Irish, actual ethnic Scots who settled in Northern Ireland by the English, who came over for a variety of reasons, religious, economic, and, and what have you, and over the last 10 years or so, ethnographers and others and people who are descended said, we are not Scots-Irish, we are Ulster-Scots because none of our colonial forebears intermarried with Irish. <laughs> so, I mean, there is an ethnic... We talked last week a little bit about this ethnic difference. It's, it's important and it's, yeah. it's, it's there. So with the townships and a small frontier around Charleston now today we have transformed it to pretty much the entire what's now the entire state except for the corner up there Greenville and Oconee and Pickens and, and Anderson the rest of it the frontier has has grown and how that frontier develops and deals with imperial policy and reaction to that and the low country dealing with imperial policy is going to be the topic of our conversation next. Thank you for coming tonight. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. It was a pleasure having Dan Tortora back on campus. He got one of his degrees here at USC. And in doing the work here, he found the germ for his book, Carolina Frontier. It's an interesting saga and one that probably a lot of folks are not familiar with. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Next time on Walter Edgar's Journal, my guest will be Professor Woody Holton of the University of South Carolina, and we'll talk about how British imperial policy forced the Americans into rebellion. The Declaration of Independence is all about George III, but really, it's directed against Parliament. Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal, a production of South Carolina Public Radio, Friday at noon. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.